Holy Spirit now and fill this place with your presence and by the power that anointed the gospel writer Matthew to record the words in his gospel and St. Paul to write the words in his book, uh, the letter to the Romans and the writer of Genesis, uh, Moses, Lord, to, to pen those words about the primordial days of creation. Lord, that spirit, we would pray, would come now and reveal your word to us. Lord, grant us listening hearts. Give us perceptive minds. And Lord, come and teach us in the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have a little preamble before I actually get into the text of the sermon this morning. I want you to know that I'm in the midst of a very large project right now. I'm writing a large thesis, and uh, and so that means that my sermon time, my preparation time, and it's a, it usually takes a lot of time to prepare something worth listening to. Believe me, it really does. Uh, and I, I, that's getting compressed because of uh, that writing. And so, for your own sakes. Please be praying for the sermons every week. You just, I mean, for your own sake, you need to do that and, uh, and, and do it for me as well. You know, when we hear the passage from Genesis this morning, sometimes, you know, people, we, we are talking about primordial history. And when we go there, some of us, because we've got um, these things, these ideas buzzing around in our minds, we can't actually hear what the scripture is teaching. We're worried about things like, well, you know, is, is Genesis uh, scientific? history. Well, let me just tell you what, and it comes to, when it comes to what we're going to be hearing this morning, it doesn't matter if Adam and Eve were Australopithecus Africanus gracile living in the Tanzania Rift Valley a gazillion years ago. That's a scientific term, scientific notation, gazillion, uh, or, whether or, not, or whether or not they were Homo sapiens sapiens living in somewhere in the ancient Near East. The, the, that's not the point of this text. The point of the text is that these are our first parents, and they represent humanity. And so, let me tell you, although this is from the dim, misty recesses of the past, this text, it also is very relevant to you and me sitting here in 2017 at Christ Church. This ancient text speaks directly to your life and to my life because it delves into human beginnings in order to illuminate the nature of human life today. And what I want you to notice is that at the heart of this passage, it is not merely an account of humanity's rebellion against God. It is not merely the origin of human sin. But at its deepest level, this is an account of ruptured relationships. This is the account of our losing our intimacy that we were created for with God and with one another. And that lost relationship isn't just sad, it isn't just painful, this loss of relationship strikes at the very essence of human existence. And let me explain why that's the case. You see, relationship is at the core of what it means to be a human being created, listen to me, created in the image of God. The God that we have come to know in Jesus Christ, the God who himself uh, in Christ identifies himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now don't try to figure this out because your brain will blow up, one God in three persons, yeah, okay, we can all go mind-blowing, one God in three persons in the unity of the Holy Trinity, that God, because he is Trinity, is relational relational in his very being. 
And so this is what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. Listen up. If God is triune, one God in three persons, then loving relationships and community are the great fountain at the center of reality. In the Christian conception, God really has love as his essence. Ultimate reality, ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. What is that essence? What, excuse me, that is what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. We believe that the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other from all eternity. Now listen to what he says. You were made for mutually self-giving other-directed love, self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. Now, here's the deal. If the one true and living God is a community of co-equal, co-eternal persons offering themselves in everlasting, uh, self-giving love to one another, if that's what God is, if God is that community, then to be created in the image of God means that you and I, here's what the image of God most essentially is. We are created to be in loving community with other people. Self-giving love is the essence of the image of God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. So if you thought that language was what made us distinctly human, no, no. It's a, it is distinctly human, but that's not at the essence of the image of God. If you thought it was intellect that makes us in the image of God, then that means every time you go to sleep, you stop being in the image of God because you're not using your intellect very much. All right? No, what it means is that we are in loving covenant relationship. That is what being in the image of God is all about. And when the tempter attacked, so here's the deal. When the tempter attacked the relationship we had with God and one another in the beginning, it was an attack at the very fabric of reality itself. And what's more, every time we are tempted to turn inwards towards our own passions, that's in curvitus and say, to turn inward towards our own passions, our own appetites, our idols, and our agendas, and turn away from God, this is attack, an attack our very reason for existing. So temptation is not some cute, petty little concept. And you've seen this, you know, you got your shoulder angel on this side, you got your shoulder devil on this side. The shoulder angel says, be good. The shoulder devil says, I'm the side that rocks. You know, that's, that's actually supposed to be funny. Uh, <laughs> that is not temptation. That's, that's petty, trivializing it. No, Rather, temptation is the seduction of our lives away from the living God who is the source of life and reality and meaning, turning away from that God towards the nothing, towards nihilism, towards death. And so this passage is vitally relevant to each one of us in this room this morning. And the stage is set in Genesis chapter 2 with a seemingly arbitrary admonition. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no reason to believe that this tree was some special knowledge tree. In other words, the fruit of the tree did not have an innate knowledge of good and evil vitamin in it. 
Indeed, and now I'm about to make some Reformed people very happy. John Calvin said of this passage, oh, doesn't that just make you feel good? <laughs> I'm going to quote everybody. <laughs> John Calvin said of this passage, A law is imposed upon the man in token of his subjection, for it would have made no difference to God if he had eaten indiscriminately, indiscriminately of any fruit he pleased. Therefore, the prohibition of one tree was a test of obedience. Now, I think Brother John is on to something here. But perhaps it would be better to nuance it to say that God's prohibition, his commandment to not eat from the tree from that particular tree, is not so much a test, listen, but an opportunity to offer trust and loving obedience to God. You see, without this commandment, Adam and Eve would, have, would not have experienced the fullness of the relationship with God for which they were created. Now, why is that? Here's the reason. If, there's, if everything in the whole world is permitted, and everything, 99.9% .9 of everything was wide open to Adam and Eve. At least, I mean, the garden was one big buffet, all right? And here's the deal, though. By having that one tree, the knowledge of, the, of, the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, here's what, what empowers them to do. They can choose to either obey or disobey. They can either uh, offer their loving obedience or they can be disobedient. Now, what does that mean? It means this. If there's no opportunity for disobedience, then they have no opportunity to say no to the relationship they were created for with God. They are merely automata. They are merely robots. They don't have a choice. If you don't get a choice to love, it's not really love. Love is an invitation to reciprocate in love. If you force somebody to love you, that by definition isn't love. And so by having this opportunity, they could show that they truly loved God. This is the mystery of our creaturely freedom. Somehow God sovereignly ordained that his human creatures had the potential of not being in relationship with him or freely offer their love to him. As one author has put it, God then is saying to humanity something like, Obey me about the tree just because you love me, just for my sake. So how does this perfect relationship with God in the absolute perfect optimal environment of the garden get derailed? It is derailed by a carefully planned attack that is designed to corrode the very foundation of the relationship. And the tempter's first step in alienating us from God is creating doubt regarding God's true intentions. In other words, the serpent here is impugning the character of the lover who brought us into being. Just listen to his words. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, that's not what God had said at all, is it? You see how the question itself twists the perception of God? God is the superabundant creator of the universe, and yet the question the serpent asks makes God sound stingy. It makes God sound like this. Hey, why doesn't God let you eat any of this good fruit? 
I think that we experience this in a very practical way on a daily basis. The enemy, listen to me, the enemy loves to misrepresent the Word of God, and then based on that misrepresentation, his own misrepresentation, he calls into question the trustworthiness of the Word of God. You can't really trust what he has told you. That's my grandson. I send him into crying fits when he hears me. (laughs) He calls the word of God into question. You can't trust what he's told you. I know people right now, I know people right now who are watching their faith being washed away like a sandcastle crumbling into the sea. And it is precisely because they have experienced the, the erosion of their confidence in the testimony of Holy Scripture. Beloved, I have been there. I was trained in a wonderful theological institution. But when I went through that theological institution, that seminary, the teaching of the Scriptures was steeped in the higher critical methods of studying the Bible. It is a methodology which has at its very starting point, what they call the hermeneutic of suspicion. In other words, listen, it, I was taught in, that, in those courses, I can remember one very clearly, the predisposition to doubt the validity of the Bible. The Bible is, as it were, in that situation, guilty until it was proven innocent. But hear what I have to say about this. Once we reject the, truth, the truthfulness of God's word, the basis for our relationship with God is undermined. Here's the deal. If you can't trust somebody, you have destroyed the relationship. If you can't trust your parents' word, if you can't trust your spouse's word, if you can't trust your wife's word, or your husband's word, or your friend's word, or your child's word, then the relationship is critically wounded. And that's what the enemy does with it when it comes to the word of God. The tempter goes on to aver that not only is God untrustworthy, he has ulterior, malicious, malevolent motives. There's enough alliteration there to get your attention. For all of his commandments. He has uh, really a shady reason for this commandment. Here's what the, here's what the devil says to uh, the serpent, the tempter. Says to the woman. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Knowing good from evil. In other words, he just doesn't want you to progress as much as you can. He's holding you back. He doesn't really want you to have good things, and he's keeping the best stuff from you. Boil it all down, and this is what it comes to, brothers and sisters. God doesn't really love you. And that, beloved, is an attack on a relationship. This is still at the heart of every temptation. The enemy wants us to question God's intentions for us. You see, God really does long for your and my greatest good and our deepest joy. And the things he forbids, he does so because they don't offer true joy, but rather death. But the tempter would have you see it as if God was just keeping all the good and fun things away from you. 
And once the foundation of the other focused, loving, trusting relationship has been eroded, we turn in on ourselves and we are immediately, as soon as we don't have that relationship, so that, that trust is eroded, we turn in on ourselves and here's what happens. It happens every single time today when people begin to see their faith erode, what happens? They turn in on themselves and are dominated by their own appetites and their own agendas and their own passions. And that's what happened in Genesis 3-6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. See the passions and the appetites and agendas here? She took of the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I always have to stress who was with her because somehow in the imagination of the public, their idea about this is here's Eve all by herself over here snake talking, <laughs> and Adam's on the back 40 clearing brush, and he doesn't know what's going on. But what's really showed here in, Gen in the Genesis account is that Adam is standing there watching Eve have this conversation. He's there the whole time. Some of you know, you've heard me teach on this before, that what I think is going on here is Adam is thinking this. Well, let's see when she eats that what happens to her. <laughs> and then I might try some too. <laughs> Idiot. And what happened when they ate from the fruit of the tree? Well, it looks at first blush like the tempter was right. They didn't just drop dead, and their eyes were indeed open. In the same way, the enemy tempts us today. He offers us something forbidden, and he tells us it's going to be pleasurable and fulfilling. And at the front end, that seems to be true. But very quickly, almost immediately in some cases, we find that this was merely the bait on the hook of death and destruction. The serpent tells them that God doesn't want them. Now, this is the irony here. The serpent tells them that God doesn't want them to be like him. But that's exactly what makes Adam and Eve already unique in all of creation. They are like him. They bear the image and likeness of God. But that image is not rooted in abstract knowledge of good and evil. That image is rooted in that we were created for relationship with God and for others. And the moment that they ate from the tree, that relationship that is the image of God was ruptured. And how can you tell? Because their first act was to create barriers between themselves in the form of clothing and then to go on hide-and-seek game to get away from God. Their intimacy with one another and their intimacy with God, with God was immediately destroyed because they turned inward to themselves. Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And what did they behold? What did they see? Did they see the beauty of the garden? Did they see the love of God? Did they see the splendor of the heavens? Did they see the goodness of creation? No. What did they notice? Their anatomy. Their eyes were opened, and they noticed none of that out there. They noticed that they were naked. And that is literally focusing on themselves. Break, broken relationship, turning in, turned inwards to themselves, destroying their intimacy with one another, destroying their intimacy with God. 
And that indeed, brothers and sisters, when that relationship is gone that we were created for, that's the very definition of death. Again, quoting Tim Keller, we become stationary, we became stationary, self-centered, and according to Genesis 3, when our relationship with God unraveled, all our other relationships disintegrated as well. Now you think about your own life. Self-centeredness creates psychological alienation. Nothing makes us more miserable than self-absorption, the endless, unsmiling concentration on our needs, wants, treatment, ego, and record. In addition, self-centeredness leads to social disintegration. It is at the root of the breakdown in relationships between nations, races, and classes, and individuals. Keller says, we lost the dance. The dance of joyful, mutually self-giving relationships is impossible in a world in which everyone is stationary, trying to get everything else to orbit around them. And if that story ended there, it would be the very definition of tragedy. But the story doesn't end there at that first creation account. In Jesus Christ... God's new creation is breaking into the world. The temptation of Jesus Christ that we heard read this morning, the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness is the reversal of this tragedy in the garden. It's literally the mirror image reversal of that tragedy. In the first creation, the representatives of the human race are placed in a lush garden. And when the tempter comes... They accept his word over God's word, and they choose to pursue their own physical appetite and self-aggrandizement. And they squander their relationship with God, and they receive death in return. Now, here's the reversal. In the new creation, the representative of the human race, Jesus Christ, the man, the son of man, the son of God, is led by God out into a garden? No into a barren desert, the worst, the worst possible location. And when the tempter comes and Jesus is literally starving, he stands fast. Jesus stands fast on the word of God. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He stands fast on the word of God, rejects the opportunity to be dominated by his appetites, and refuses to glorify himself. If you're the son of God, jump off the temple. For the Bible says, Jesus, that the angels will catch you. So you don't even dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said, well, what the Bible actually says is you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to make myself a spectacle like that. He refuses to glorify himself. And thus, the first installment of God's new creation begins. Do you see how the temptation in the wilderness is the opposite reversal of the fall in the garden? And though this first step towards a new creation begins in the desert, it is, in fact, completed once again in a garden. In the first garden, listen, in the first garden, death conquered humanity. In the last garden... The man, Jesus Christ, conquers death. And that is the journey that we make every Lent. A journey from the garden where we fell and tried to cover the shame of our nakedness. The garden where we fell and covered the shame of our nakedness. To the cross where Jesus 
is stripped naked to carry our shame. And finally, to the garden of resurrection where he makes all things new. For if by one man, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, by coming to this table, we are entering into new life made possible in Jesus Christ. We come to this meal confessing. We never come here without making confession. There's one time in the whole year where we don't have a prayer of confession before Holy Communion. And that is at the great vigil of Easter because the resurrection is so powerful and explosive and amazing. It just kind of, it just nukes all our sin. <laughs> and we are washed in the blood of the Lamb and we come righteous to him. But we come each Sunday through confession, confessing our self-centeredness, our rebellious and destructive living. And then at this table, we are confronted with the ultimate expression of self-giving love. Love that is so great that it is, in fact, literally making all things new, even us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.